0: First of all, happy Independence Day. I hope everyone has a great week. I hope that you're able to take some time off, spend it with your friends and family. We've no doubt taken some hits as a country under Joe Biden, but this country is still worth fighting for, particularly after so many men and women have laid down their lives in the name of freedom, laid down their lives in the name of this country. So we'll celebrate independence and and celebrate the birth of our nation. Today, we're going to be talking about medical freedom. One thing that we learned during COVID is just how much power big pharma has over a nation. We also learned that when people like Dr. Fauci say things like I am the science, he's not wrong. I mean, one of the conversations we've repeatedly had on this show is about how much power the NIH has over research with the grants that they give out. So, in such a captured society by both our government and big pharma, how does the truth ever get to light? Well, talk to someone who's been fighting for ivermectin to bring it out to the public of the fight for it during covid his name's dr pierre corey he's been on the show i I believe a couple of times already but he's out with a new book the war on ivermectin which takes you through his journey his fight for this why he fought for it and also why he was silenced or at least an attempt to silence him so we'll get into all of that on the show i hope you enjoy here's dr pierre corey Dr. Corey, it's great to have you on the show again. How are you hanging in there? It's been—it's been—it's been been a tough couple of years for you, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it really—it's been quite the journey. But um, you know, I'll say this: that the transition was rocky, rough. but you know, I, I've I've landed in a new place, and I'm I'm actually doing pretty well. I'm happy.
0: And I only laughed because you, you kind of have to; otherwise, it's just all too depressing. You know, you, you got to have some levity injected in this this world of nonsense and chaos that we we live in. Uh, you know, Dr. Corey, you really took on the mantle of of pushing for ivermectin in, in the country. You know, despite attacks, despite you know people trying to take your license, you know, all these different things. Why go so hard for ivermectin?
3: Well, here's the thing, right? So I've been a, a medical educator my whole life, um, or my whole career, and it's what I really enjoyed. I love teaching residents and students, and I, I just loved when I had new insights or information, passing that on. And, you know, when I found myself in COVID, when myself and my partners, we identified the data signal around ivermectin, like, I mean, Linda, we, we, were, we were in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it was winter of 2020, 2021. People were dying you know, all over the place, huge spikes and deaths and hospitalizations filling. And as a physician, you have a solution and you're, you're morally and ethically and professionally responsible to, to, to disseminate that. And, you know, we couldn't stop. We knew that was our one. We had to do it. We knew that ivermectin was crushing COVID. And what we didn't know is that we were up against a, a massive force that that was trying to distort Dismiss and um, and disappear the evidence of efficacy for ivermectin, and we didn't know that going in. I, I mean, you know, when I gave my testimony, it went viral. I mean, we were we were ecstatic. We thought like the world would now know that there's a available cheap. Uh, really safe, effective, therapeutic, and um, that's not what happened when we brought that information to the world.
0: Doctors like you, who you know, kind of went against the grain in in a real way, or you know, the ones that did on the vaccines. Is I mean, you had nothing to gain from pushing ivermectin. Ivermectin is dirt cheap. You know, if anything, you know, you you took hits that you probably didn't foresee in, in trying to bring this conversation to the public. So you had nothing to gain. to to try to advocate for this?
3: There's nothing to gain. You know, people have accused me of some sort of conflicts of interest because I have a nonprofit and we're literally a nonprofit dedicated to medical education to the public, especially during the pandemic. And I think we were a a pretty impressive force. Um, Sorry. Um, I think we were a pretty impressive force for for doing that. But we, we had nothing to gain. We were just trying to help people. And, you know, what we paid for that was shocking. I mean, our collective careers ended. We, we had, like, really celebrated careers in academic medicine, and all of us are now unemployable by that system. I mean, I mean, Paul Merrick, you know, my partner and co-founder, you know, he's the most published practicing critical care doctor in the history of the specialty. You know, I was really well known for being an expert at a, a subfield of, the, of critical care medicine. My textbook had been translated into seven languages, second edition, Umberto Maduri, who you know, 40 years, world expert on the use of corticosteroids and critical illness, I mean, widely published, and all of us had our careers ended. And, um, you know, uh, thanks. <laughs> you know, like I said, we, we had a lot to learn. And and what I've learned through that journey, what I learned of what we're up against, what I've learned about the, the medical system, the, the scope and the scale of the control and corruption of it by the pharmaceutical industry has been just life-changing for me, transformative. I, I don't recognize medicine anymore.
0: That's what's very scary about where we are now is just the, the power Big Pharma has, the power that you know the NIH and the CDC, that, that they have collectively in being able to silence doctors that go against the narrative. I mean, how does any doctor actually practice real medicine with any objectivity in that environment?
3: You can't inside the system. The system's locked and and closed now. You know, I call the system the the health system. The big, you know, uh, multi-hospital healthcare systems, the academic medical centers, you you can't do that. I mean, not inside the hospitals. In private practice, if you know anything about the recent history of medicine, private practice has been dying for a couple of decades. I mean, most doctors are now fully employed by that system. And but the, the one last remaining refuge is private practice, you know, independent practitioners where you don't have a boss, you don't have an administration over you. You are the boss. And those physicians like myself now, we have very wide autonomy. I still got to watch out for the state behind my back because they're after me. But, um, you yeah, know, I don't know if you know this, but I specialize in the treatment of vaccine injury and long COVID. And I have to use lots of different repurposed uh, medicines and different therapies and interventions I could never treat my patients if I had an employer. I mean, they would come down on me in two seconds. What I'm doing is not evidence-based, there's insufficient evidence, and it's malpractice. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I, but, but I'll tell you, we have to preserve private practice because patients need us. I mean, the, you know how you know many patients come to me or people that I meet when I go out and speak and everything, they're terrified. They're, they don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to see their doctor. Even a doctor they've had for 20 years You know, they'll they'll go in and the doctor will want to get them boosted. And they're like, I just had COVID last month. Like crazy stuff coming out of doctors' mouths because of the relentless propaganda and censorship. And the doctors have fallen for these lies. And and now they're spewing lies at their patients and the patients don't want to hear that stuff.
0: Do you think the government wants to kill private practice in America?
3: You know, I do think that um, because if you look at the history of uh, alternative practitioners like osteopaths and naturopaths and um, and chiropractors. And, you know, they, they've been attacked for for a long time. A lot, lot of them, you know, the, some of the chronic Lyme disease experts, um, phenomenal physicians, and they've been under attack by, by those institutions of medicine. And, you know, is it market forces that disappeared private practice? Like, you know, one of the allures of working for an employer, right, is you have kind of a guaranteed salary, you have some benefits, you don't have to manage or administrate your practice. And I, I don't know if this generation is just, you know, more willing to work for an employer than than deal with the headaches of being in private practice. But there has been an inexorable shift uh, towards more and more doctors being employed. And I, I, you know, I think it's it's partly the money. Those systems started buying up medical practices, and I think the prices might have been too high for for private practitioners to to say no. And I, I don't know if it was a concerted thing or or some sort of cultural shift, but I would say it would be very much in their interest to disappear private practice. They would get complete control over everything we treat patients with, and and that's what I see is this very curated, very narrow slice of the breadth of therapeutics that we can help patients with to protect their health and treat them. I would say, you know, academic and system medicine, it's very narrow. The curriculums are narrow. All of the, the widely available kind of inexpensive, really safe therapies that doesn't make the pharmaceutical uh, companies money. They're not practiced in the system. In fact, they're actively, they're not funded for research. You'll never get, you'll never provide sufficient evidence to adopt those treatments and so they're going to remain on the outskirts. But I got to tell you, they're phenomenally effective, way safer than your average pharmaceutical. And they have decades of, of positive results. And so I, I find wor- that my, my new kind of career right now is so stimulating, inspiring and satisfying. You know, I get, I get to think out of the box and try different strategies and collaborate with other uh, clinicians. And, you know, we're, we're like learning on the ground how to treat this vaccine injury syndrome. They're wickedly complex. The patients are super sick. And we're trying to figure it out the best we can. The system's not helping us. Actually, I'll give you an absurd example. So there was an article, a couple of articles in the last few weeks about the current state of long COVID research in the United States. The government has given $1.2 billion to fund research. They have apparently five uh, clinical trials they've designed. Only one of them is ready to accept patients. It has not accepted a patient yet. And guess what drug they're studying in that first trial? Paxlovit an absolute joke. For long COVID, they want to use Paxlovid. It's absolutely just, I got to tell you that the system has failed in every respect in COVID. And I think that failure is exposing the rot that's in the system. What kind of
0: vaccine injuries are you saying?
3: So what I see is what I call vaccine injury syndrome. And I differentiate that than a vaccine injury complication. So the difference between the syndrome and complications Complication, just generally like single organ dysfunction, like a pericarditis, a myocarditis, a stroke, a heart attack, right? And what I see is syn- the syndrome, which is really most, most almost identical to what we call chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalitis. And all the patients that I see, they come with three core symptoms and they're debilitating symptoms. One is uh, incredible fatigue. Um Um, the other is post-exertional malaise. And the third is brain fog, some sort of cognitive deficit where they have problems with short-term memory or focus or concentration, um, or processing of tasks. And the patients are really, if so many of them were in the height of health before their vaccine, like eating right and exercising, doing well in their careers. And And so many of my patients are disabled. And, you know, those are just the three core symptoms. And then they come with a whole bunch of different organ system uh, symptoms, like um, lots of neuropathy. So like uh, sensory neuropathies, burning, pins and needles, tingling, uh, motor neuropathies, either weakness, paralysis or convulsions, contortions. And then so many cranial problems like uh, tinnitus, you know, ear ringing, uh, headaches, vertigo, dizziness, you know, uh, vision problems, hearing problems, um, I get GI intestinal problems, musculoskeletal like um, you know joint pains, muscle pains, and it, it's a wickedly complex and devastating illness. I mean like I said, my patients are mostly disabled they cannot uh, most of them cannot work anymore they can't sustain that kind of activity it makes them sicker and um, and and they're really they're really sad, they're really worried because you know, Unless they find me, they, they go to the system doctors. The journey through the systems that I have to hear when I take your history, it's they go to specialists after specialists after specialists. For a long time, almost no specialist would even whisper the word vaccine as a cause. Now they're slightly more open, but they have no idea what to do. There's no guidelines. There's no recommendations from the government. So, And they work for systems that are not going to let them use. And guess what? Shocker here. Uh, one of the most effective medicines in long COVID and in vaccine injury is ivermectin. Um, it's not a cure for sure. I would say 70% of my patients respond and those responses can vary to from modest to quite large. But um, it's one of the main things that I use uh, amongst many other things. But um, so like I said, I, I mean, the, the system is just not researching. They're not providing guidance. You know, in fact, that, that's actually one of the faults of the system now, like the system's so locked down, they will not treat a disease until guidelines come out. Guidelines aren't going to come out until they do these ridiculously highly funded, randomized controlled trials of some pharmaceutical product. I mean, it's absurd.
0: Quick commercial break. More with Dr. Pierre Corey. Two thirds of Americans are at risk to experience a blackout. You could be one of them. Sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be. With the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X, folks say this new solar generator from four Patriots is worth its weight in gold. Why? Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable so you can run the big appliances like your fridge even longer or other devices like an electric blanket, microwave, RV air conditioner, or even an electric wheelchair. You also get 12 outlets, including four AC outlets so you can power more devices at once and two USB-C outlets, which can charge your phone 20 times faster than a regular plug. Best of all, this new solar generator is fume-free, safe to use inside, and never needs gas ever. Over 150,000 Americans trust Patriot power generators. Go to 4Patriots.com Lisa to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4Patriots.com Lisa.
2: I'm Katya Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
0: Do we know how much money Big Pharma has made from COVID? Obviously, they've now opened up a, a whole new marketplace with mRNA vaccines that they weren't able to do before the fog of war. Uh, but do, do we know how much money Big Pharma has made from COVID?
3: I've, I've heard different estimates. Um, I, I, it's in the many tens of billions because you have to add up um, vaccines remdesivir worldwide, right? Just in this country, I think we've spent three or four, maybe even $5 billion on remdesivir. Um, and remdesivir was used widely in advanced health economies. Um, molnupiravir, Paxlovid, monoclonal antibodies. Um, I, I mean, it's, it and and that marketplace, right? Those revenues didn't exist in 2019. They opened up overnight and it was like a bonanza. And, and that's why, you know, I wrote this book, The War on Ivermectin, because you know, ivermectin, um, you know, I, I, the book is sort of autobiographical. I talk about my career, my COVID career, because I was involved in a number of aspects. Um, but then the core, the center of the book is about ivermectin. And ivermectin, I present that as a case study in what pharma does, which is they conduct disinformation campaigns when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interests. And I don't think in the history of the wars on repurposed or off patent drugs, and this has been going on for decades. This is not new to ivermectin. But I would say in that history, I don't think there's ever been a single medicine that threatened as large a marketplace and a profit potential as Ivermectin. I mean, it had to be destroyed. And they pulled out all the stops. And and that's, that's what really transformed me is I got to see so many pillars of society and institutions being manipulated into serving pharma. I mean, they were using the legislature, the journals, the agencies, the Professional societies, uh, the farmers, the, the trial investigators—I mean, they were all working for pharma, At least in, in the six trials that only that the only six trials that the world heard about because they were published in high-impact journals and they generated news headlines around the world. I call it the Big Six. There's a chapter in my book called the Big Six because there's 97 control trials in ivermectin, the summary of which is massively, positively effective, but the world didn't hear about the 97. They only heard about six and those six were unique amongst all of them because they were all conducted by investigators literally drowning in pharmaceutical conflicts. And the manipulations that they did in those trials were so brazen, yet they sailed to publication in the top journals in the world. I mean, if I if I had submitted a trial like they had, uh, I could have never gotten that trial published. They were manipulating data, moving goalposts in the middle, changing endpoints, they, they did so many brazen tactics to try to bury the evidence. And I got to tell you, they succeeded because those trials, you know, are what most of the world's physicians think finally prove that ivermectin doesn't work. And the opposite is true. But they, they've they been peddling lies on many drugs for a long time, both lies to support drugs and lies to to, to, to kill drugs. Um, you know, I'll tell you a, a brief anecdote, what kind of inspired the book was you know, after my testimony, everything went sideways. Like the world did not warmly embrace our advice. I wouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I think a lot of lay people in many countries did and started following our organization and our, and our protocols. But, you know, the major part of society and all of its institutions openly attacked us. I mean, within two days of my, um, testimony, the Associated Press came calling. They wanted an interview. We were so excited and I did an interview with the Associated Press And article comes out a day later, and it's a total hit job. I mean, I told this reporter all of this data, all of the evidence of efficacy, and they just crushed ivermectin in that article. And that was my first kind of eye-opening. I mean, I'm used to teaching in medical centers and giving lectures, and here I am. I have this great talk with this reporter, and then this comes out. We actually filed an ethics complaint. Don't laugh. We filed an ethics. This is early COVID, where we actually thought there was something called ethics in journalism. And, um, obviously they didn't, they didn't agree that there was an ethical violation, but everything was going sideways for three months. And then one day I was looking at my email and I got an email from a guy named professor William B Grant. I didn't know who he was. He wrote two lines to me. That's it. He said, dear Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin, they've been doing to vitamin D for decades. And then he included a link to this article called the disinformation playbook and it outlines tactics that industries deploy when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interest. And I'm reading the tactics and I'm like, wow, they did this yesterday. I saw them do that twice last week. They're in the middle of doing this now. I could see all the tactics. And I'll tell you, from that day on, I saw a different world. It was like getting a teacher's edition to the world. And I saw everything they were doing. And I said, I am documenting this. I am documenting what they're doing to this drug and how many people are dying as a result. And and that was kind of the genesis for the book.
0: Well, I think one thing we've learned throughout COVID is just how controlled our, our society is and, and how much industries are, are captured. One thing that really surprised me during COVID is how a lot of doctors actually lack the ability to critically think. Uh, I mean, I had some doctors that try to pressure me into getting the vaccine, and then when I pushed back on them and raised points like, you know, statistically, I'm not at risk from COVID or I'm not obese, I don't have any comorbidities that would, you know, lead me to, to be, you know, more impacted by it or we don't have long-term data on the vaccines and, and you know, or it's not preventing breakthrough cases, right? This was like even early on before we knew for sure that about breakthrough cases, it was just like, there's a lot of people getting it who, you know, allegedly got the vaccine. And then upon pushing back, they conceded that I was correct. But then I'm like, well, why would you try to push me to get something when, you know, it, it, like it makes no sense. But it, it just really demonstrated to me like, wow, a lot of these doctors we go to aren't really even thinking through what they're, they're telling us to do and inject in our bodies.
3: You're bringing up a really important so- what you discovered in COVID, um, I had already known. I mean, I, I used to be the head of the main ICU at University of Wisconsin, you know, one of the big big academic medical centers in this country. And I've had to work with many specialists, many doctors for a decade and a half. And I have to tell you, the level, the average level of doctoring in this country, I, I would say, in my experience, there's a little bit less, or maybe, I, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to say 10% of the physicians I interacted with I thought were really open-minded critical thinkers. The rest of them, they kind of follow what they're told. They like following guidelines. They like rules and they just accept these rules and they act on them because they have this implicit faith and trust in the experts, you know? And so when a guideline comes out, it must be correct because it's in a guideline and you know, that's simply not true. Those guidelines are being controlled and manipulated from the top and there's no knowledge by the average doctor of the really the depth of corruption of pharma. Like I'll tell you what I saw before COVID. Like I thought the corruption of pharma was like, you know, the trips, the pens, the pretty like uh, drug reps that came in and, you know, would try to get you to prescribe their men. You know, I saw them as just being like, you know, really mercantile commercial and, and marketing like that was their main problem. I had no idea they controlled all of the science the science that we thought was objective, by the best scientists, by the best institutions—I mean, it's totally controlled. What gets funded, what's get, what gets studied, um, what doesn't get studied is all controlled by pharma. And I didn't know that. And there's no class on that in medical school. There's no curriculum which teaches, you know, an incoming physician, a young junior physician, exactly what the system is that they're about to enter, um, because I, I don't think you could. I don't think you could teach that class because and then tell someone to enter that system. I mean, they would be completely estranged. They, they would be so disruptive if, if they knew what they were really getting into. And, you know, I'm guilty of that. I, I mean, I had no idea of the depth, the scope and the scale until COVID really exposed itself to me. And, and then I've been studied on it. Like I've been reading books on the history of the pharmaceutical industry, the history of the control of the medical journals. I mean, you know, one of the former editors of the top medical journal in the world 20 years ago, in 2001, Dr. Marcia Angel resigned from her position and wrote a book about what she was seeing. And that's over 20 years ago. That book is not taught in medical school curriculums, and it really should. And so it's, it, it's been part of my journey has been this, this revealing this exposure to something that's really not pleasant to think about or look at, especially when you think about our public health, the health of us as individuals, our survival. I mean... There was a lot of needless death. And and the vaccines, we all know, I mean, cause a humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, the the, the hundreds of thousands of people dead from the vaccines. And that's not that that is a data driven statement. We know that statement. It's screaming out of the life insurance industry. All of the young people suddenly dropping dead at, at rates we've never seen before. unprecedented rates and nothing about it in the media, whispers. The government doesn't respond. And the epidemiology is screaming. And, and those excess deaths are still firing along at rates we've never seen before. And COVID is is weak now. And very few people in the hospital, very few people are dying from COVID. But we're seeing immense amounts of excess death. And that is that is some of the consequences to what they did in COVID. And they're trying to hide it, trying to ignore it. They're, trying to, they're hoping that this isn't going to come out. But I, I'll, I'll say one last thing, Len, is that... that I also consider my book a a history book. I I want this documented. what they did here. I want the world to know, and I want people in the future to know what they did, because they're going to do it again. They do it all the time. And we're going to have more health crises that either they're going to concoct or they're going to come at us, and their responses are going to be, again, it's going to be profits first and patients last.
0: Well, one of the things I also learned uh, during COVID is, you know, you've got Dr. Fauci saying things like, I am the science, but- He's right in the sense of the NIH controls so much research that we see in this country through grants. And so to some degree, he's not wrong. It's not because he's this he is a science, but he's allowed to control
3: it. That is so true. I like how you said he says I am science and you could laugh at him at that statement on the, at, at superficially. But from what you just said, you are right. That guy controls literally the entire research funding budget. We put more into medical research than any country in the world. And the world looks to us for our research. And he, 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 he literally works for pharma. He, he has made decades of attacks. He does not fund stuff into research uh, medicines, into vitamins, things that are really safe that could totally prevent illness. I mean, we have an explosion in chronic illnesses um, under his watch. I mean, he's decimated the health of our society And that's science? No, he's not science. He's pharma. But he controls all of science. And that part about the control of the funding, a friend of mine wrote an article on Substack, really brilliant friend, great writer. And he talked about, he looked at data around uh, innovations in medicine. And if you look back like 30, 40, 50 years, there were very high rates of kind of breakthrough discoveries. I mean, if you look in the last 30 or 40 years, the amount of money spent in medical research, it's all kind of iterative. It's all kind of around the same concepts. There's the amount of breakthroughs in medicine because they're not trying out or testing new ideas, new insights, new approaches unless it's going to serve pharma. And and I got to tell you, it's destroying our knowledge base as a society and as a globe. And that's not an understatement. And and the consequences are just um, again, I didn't think about this stuff. I didn't understand the implications you know, the, the presence of that control and really what the downstream con- con- consequences are. And they really are indescribable. You know, the book's called
0: The War on, on Ivermectin. Uh, why do you think there was a war on Ivermectin? Was it is it all profit driven? Was it political? You know what? Why?
3: OK, so, Lisa, that's like um, I wouldn't say my least favorite question because because here's what I answer that to. I think I'm most comfortable laying the incentive at the profit level right? because people can understand that. You don't have to go a few levels into conspiracy theory and some of the layers of of really who is doing what in this. But I think I, I think there were other objectives at stake here uh, more than just making money. Um, it's uncomfortable to talk about maybe not on your show. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, you can talk about it here. <laughs> is, is this the right place to be oh, it sure <laughs> is. It sure is. This
0: is what we do here,
3: doctor. <laughs> okay. Because no, I mean, when you look at like, you know, the Department of Defense involvement, how like Farmer was literally working for the military. This was a military exercise response to a bioweapon. And so you know that the military role, you know, when you look at the ethics of the way we practice the ethics around vaccines, so you just gave that example of you going into your doctor and this doctor is trying to boost you. And you're like, what? I've had COVID. I'm young. I'm healthy. I'm like, you know, these vaccines don't even really work. The data is really not encouraging for them. They don't appear safe. I mean, all of that. And when you look at VAERS, right? So VAERS right now, I think we're well over 18,000 deaths reported. And that's the only problem with VAERS is it's underreported. And by a factor anywhere from 10 to 100 times. The the, the injuries are well over a million. And yet I saw our entire society just ignore all of the death and carnage and just vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. And it finally clicked one day. I was like, that's because we're in a military exercise. That's military ethics, right? Where you sacrifice 100 men to take a hill, right? Because you got to take that hill. So they were marching towards something. It wasn't about medicine. It wasn't about our health. And, you know, and the world went mad from propaganda and censorship. And so you go to the level of the military. And then when you bring in WEF and Bill Gates, I mean, Bill Gates's power and complicity in all of this is immense. And I don't know what his objectives are about, you know, a depopulation agenda is on the cards. And I, you know, See, I don't like going here, Lisa, because I like to stay in my lane as an MD. <laughs> but, but I've been living in this world. I can't help
0: it. Yeah, it's all weird. It doesn't. Uh, a lot of things don't add up. And, and one thing we know for sure is the, the one thing that they're not encouraging people to do, which would probably save the most lives, is just to be healthy and to lose weight and eat healthy and get vitamin D and, yeah, just live a healthy life.
3: If I had been in charge, or me or any number of my colleagues, I mean, I would have done immediately a national campaign, billboards, get your vitamin D level checked. We would put out guidance for, you know, replenishing your vitamin D, get everybody's vitamin D levels left, tell people to get in the sun, do everything you could. And just that alone would have made a major impact on... Uh, the mortality, morbidity that we we had to suffer from in in the last few years, but you know you're totally right. It's
0: crazy, crazy times. Uh, it's still, uh, you know, obviously still dealing with so much of it from the the crushed economy, crushed lives, vaccine injuries, all of it uh, ruined careers. Right, people lost their licenses, doctors uh, lost their their jobs at universities. So. Uh, Dr. Piracore, I appreciate uh, your fight and and the writing this book. And and the book's out, right? Is, when's the book out?
3: Yeah, you can buy it on Amazon or um, at uh, Dell. You know, it's on the imprint for ICANN, which is Dell Big Bigtree's uh, nonprofit. So it's ICANN.org. You can buy it from there as well. And the um, book's doing really well, actually. I'm, I'm very, very happy. Not only, you know, I'm self-interested in being successful, but it, I got to tell you, Lisa, my motivation was really to teach. I, I, I want the world to know what happened here, what went on. And what they're going to learn in that book, I think, is even to the most studied COVID observer, I think they're going to be shocked at what I what I write about.
0: Well, I, I appreciate you bring it to the forefront. It's important to have these. Well, it's important to have conversations that they don't want you to have, because that makes means they're actually important. So, you know, uh, but uh, Dr. Piracori, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, the war on ivermectin is out, as you just said. So so go out and get it. Uh, appreciate you taking the time, sir.
3: Lisa, my pleasure. Really. Thank you.
0: That was Dr. Pierre Corey. Appreciate him taking the time to join the show. Uh, I want to thank you guys at home for listening every Monday and Thursday, but you can listen throughout the week. Feel free to leave us a review. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank John Cassio, my producer, for putting the show together. Until next time.